I'm reading from the NLT version. Psalm 25, a Psalm of David. O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced, but disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you have shown me from long ages past. Do not remember the rebellious sins in my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right, teaching them his way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness. All who keep his covenant and obey his demands. For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive my many, many sins. Who are those who fear the Lord? He will show them the path they should choose. They will live in prosperity, and their children will inherit the land. The Lord is a friend to those who fear him. He teaches them his covenant. My eyes are always on the Lord, for he rescues me from the traps of my enemies. Turn to me and have mercy, for I am alone and in deep distress. My problems go from bad to worse. Oh, save me from them all. Feel my pain and see my trouble. Forgive all my sins. See how my enemies Ha see how my enemies have and how ambitiously they hate me. Protect me. Rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced, for in you I take refuge. May integrity and honesty protect me, for I put my hope in you. O oh God, ransom Israel from all its troubles. This is the word of God for the people of God. Okay, you can have a, have a seat. Um, today we're going to talk about Psalm 25, as I understand you all are exploring prayer in Lent. And as we go into this, I, I'd love for you to have two questions in your mind. Uh, first, and, and ponder this right now, I want to ask if you think that, if you really think in your heart of hearts, not just in your head, that you can tell God anything. And second, I want you to think about whether you really think that prayer can be a conversation? Do you really think that you can hear or feel God in your prayer life? Uh, Psalm 25 is a long prayer where David lists some things that he wants to tell to God. He lists some things he wants to ask God. He uh, lists some things that he believes are true and some things that he's hoping for from God. And David ends the psalm by begging God to ransom Israel. And he begins by submitting, oh Lord, I give my life to you. So he starts the psalm and he ends the psalm, this prayer with surrender. And between these surrenders, you realize how much David is aware that he is needy. So we're gonna look at Psalm 25 and these, these, two, uh, these two postures, neediness, and surrender. 
Uh, David is very bossy in this psalm, if that wasn't apparent to you. It reminds me, actually, uh, of a woman who used to visit Salem frequently and was a part of this church. And there used to be a picture of her and her husband in the library here, and that was Vivian Turneau. And if you ever had the chance to pray with Vivian Turneau, uh, you, you knew that she could pray like David. Um, she would come to Salem sometimes and join us at our pre-church prayer. And when I was trying to think about how to convey how Vivian prays, uh, honestly, these are the two analogies that immediately came to mind. She talked to Jesus, I think, either like he was her cat or, or her employee. And I picture sort of the way Vivian would talk to Jesus was like she was running a business, like maybe a car wash, and Jesus was a teenager who works for her because she would pray things like, Jesus, you better show up today. You better come over here, and you better be with us, and you better do what you said you were going to do. But it, it was not disrespectful. It really was this unique right that she had earned as this aged saint so familiar with Jesus that she spoke to him with a confidence and familiarity that I do not have. And David is sort of like this too. In Psalm 25, he's telling God, don't let me be disgraced in verse 2. Show me the right path in verse 4. Lead me by your truth in verse 5. Remember your compassion in verse 6. In the first six verses, David commands God in these ways. He says, don't. He says, show. He says, point, lead, teach, remember. And then after all of that bossing around, he has the audacity to say, and, um, and don't remember any of the foolishness of my youth. Just let's do all that other stuff and then don't do that. Uh, verse 7 says, do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Uh, remember me in the light of your unfailing love. For you are merciful, O Lord. So, yes, on the surface, David is being demanding. He's asking a lot of God. But there's an assumption that's underlying these demands. And that assumption is that David knows that he's needy. Uh, and he knows that God is trustworthy. So even though he's being bossy, it's coming from a place of subordination. Even though David is demanding on closer inspection, you can see that he is submitting himself to God. And this is just a classic case of desperation leading to intimacy. I'm sure many of you can relate to this, crying out for God when you feel helpless. And David's willingness to beg God, to plead with him, all underscore an assumption in David, which is that he needs help and that God has the power to help him. And remember, he's the king of Israel. He's the king of God's people. And still, he feels needy and helpless. How many of us spend our good days not needing God? I certainly uh, can even become superstitious and not ask him to help me rely on him lest he answer that prayer and saddle me with turmoil. Um, I have a tough time putting this, wordiness, this, uh, this neediness into words, uh, trying to describe this desperation of David. His tone implies this view of himself, though, that the best word I can come up with is creaturely. 
He has a creatureliness. Uh, David knows that he is not a self-made man. And it's also childlike. Uh, David is, is creaturely and childlike. Those, those are the best descriptions I can come up with for this. I think if David was our preacher, and he regularly said what he says here, which is that no one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced. We would say that preacher is obtuse, and he is out of touch. But David says, I trusted him. I trust him. Um, here's a few analogies that came to mind but are not perfect. I think for a lot of us, our identity as Christians might be compared to, this is for the adults, to our affiliation with a political party we like or a sports team that we support. We say things like, I like what they're doing with X, uh, but I'm not convinced Y is a good idea, or I love some of the players, but I'm not sure about this coaching staff. And what I mean by that analogy is to say that we see ourselves as individuals with agency and a willingness to, for the most part, identify with God, with what we like. But that means we're not needy. It means we're not subordinate. We're not childlike. David's the opposite. He is talking like a needy child. He's essentially saying, you promised, and give me a break. You promised, right? And the sentiment, don't hold me accountable, <laughs> are classic traits of children. And God is actually offering the same to you. He's offering that childlike posture to you. God is not asking for anything from you. But he is offering us more than we often take him up on. David recognized that, recognizes that he's offering us a lot more. God is both powerful and safe. But that's only half of the story. Yes, he is approachable. But that's only as beautiful and potent as we let that be in our lives by actually being in the presence of the approachable God. No one asks for directions if they know where they're going, or at least think they know where they're going. But David's mindset, as we see it in this psalm, assumes he's lost. No one asks for directions as David does when he says, lead me, show me your path, if they think they know where they're going. David assumes he's going to be disgraced, so he asks to be protected. David assumes he needs love, so he asks God to remember him. David assumes that he has been rebellious and sinful, so he asks God to forget that part. David is assuming a lot of needs within himself, and he brings them to his king, to his father, dare we say his heavenly dad. And that part of David is appealing, if a bit difficult, to actually exercise we may not feel needy all the time, but we all experience acute moments of a lack of direction or a fear of being disgraced or unloved, shameful. You know, we, we all experience these at different times, but not necessarily all the time. One of my favorite discoveries 
from this summer. I was on sabbatical this last summer. And um, one of my favorite discoveries was that I think there is a lot of spiritual profit to be found in reading murder mysteries. I got really into reading old crime fiction, um, especially G.K. Chesterton's Father Brown uh, and anything by Agatha Christie. And the book that really kind of got me into this idea was um, the book And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. And the reason is that so much of the murder mystery genre highlights the human capacity for self-deception. So the story of this book goes like this. There's 10 people. They've all been invited by an aristocrat to this exclusive island estate. And for most of these 10, they do not remember the aristocrat, but the invitation implies they should, each in some specific way. So each invite has this specific thing that makes them think this nobleman knows them, and because it's an exclusive invitation, their vanity draws them to attend. And once they're on the island, they gather for a cocktail hour, and this final record starts playing, and there's this voiceover that starts accusing each of them of a specific murder. And in each case, the person says to themselves this rationalization of why that death that they were proximate to was an accident and not actually their fault. So it's an island of people whose vanity overcomes their own knowledge that this host is a stranger to them. And when confronted with their complicity in these various deaths, each of them has a reason why they are not a murderer. The twist is that none of them give the benefit of the doubt to the other nine. They think, well, I had this accident, but I'm on an island with nine murderers. They see themselves as victims of accidental circumstance, but assume their fellow guests are all capable of murder. And is that not a beautiful fictional representation of the real human condition? And there's actually a term for this called the fundamental attribution error, and it's an individual's tendency to attribute another's actions to that person's character or personality. In other words, you did that because of your character and your personality, while attributing our own behavior to external situational factors outside of our control. A party full of people rationalizing their own behavior but unwilling to give the benefit of the doubt to others, right? That's just the human condition. Why do we do that? I think the reason we do that is because people are messy and people can be dangerous and foolish and even calculating. The problem with that bias is not that it's a wrong assessment of others. We get to that bias because we actually probably have a, kind of a right assessment of how we've been treated by people or our experiences. People are messy. They're often as messy as we might suspect. It's actually a wrong assessment of oneself. Our mistake here is to underestimate our own capacity for sin. And David is not underestimating his sin. He knows he is a needy subject 
of the King of Kings. Uh, Pastors are often accused of having motives behind things that are usually not there. Thank you for the compliment. Uh, That does not happen a ton in my church. I am uh, humble and grateful to say. Uh, But a few years ago, I was going through a rough patch where I was under a lot of scrutiny, and I did not feel like the accusations were fair or true. And during that time, uh, someone I really look up to, who goes to this church, uh, had me read an article which made the point that while accusations may not be true, they cannot be any worse than the other things that I have done that would lead Jesus to die for my sins. Let me say that again. These accusations may not be true, but they cannot be any worse than anything I've ever done that would lead God to die for me. And ever since then, I've wondered what it would be like if a pastor faced an outlandish accusation and their response was, well, that sounds like me. I think that's the kind of mindset that David is bringing in this psalm. That's the mindset of somebody who writes a psalm like Psalm 25, who prays that they are needy. They say, I don't know if I did that, but it sure sounds like I, I, I've, I could see myself doing that. That's a person with a sober understanding of who they are and their standing before God. David enjoyed knowing God perhaps more than anyone ever documented. In most translations, in verse 14, it says, friend or friendly. But the King James actually says secret counsel, which is language that implies a a deep intimacy, deeper than a friend. David's unabashed neediness shows not not just that he's buds with God, that there is a secret counsel. There's this surrender to God that he, he really needs to hear from him. For every needy ask, we've talked about the neediness, David also has a lot of lines about trusting and following. The first line, I give my life to you. In verse 4, David asks, show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. And he trusts God will show the path, as he says in verse 8, he shows the proper path to those who go astray. Or verse 9, he leads the humble in doing right. Or verse 10, the Lord leads with unfailing love. Verse 12, he will show them the path. To go back to what I was saying earlier, this is another manifestation of David's creatureliness before God. Again, I wonder how many of us have a Christian identity that's less like surrender and more a la carte. This is what I meant by comparing our faith to political affiliation or or a sports team that we support. Uh, We like most of it. We might not agree with everything. And for you adults in the room, you probably see yourself as a fully realized, uh, self-possessed person with the power to make choices. And my point's not to say that you should now be more like David. I just 
think there's a correlation worth highlighting between, one, how much David enjoys the secret counsel of knowing God, and two, this needy surrender. To be a Christian, you do not need to be like David in this psalm. Or, if you've read other stories about David, you can be like David and still be a Christian. But I think David illustrates for us what it can be like at its best to fully long for and find the Messiah. I've been a Christian for 21 years now, and this year I've been a professed Christian for more of my life than not. Um, And I've spent different seasons of those 21 years with varying amounts of intimacy with God. Something that really shifted, though, for me this summer uh, while I was on sabbatical was that I was actually praying. Um, And what happened in that was this shift back to a really childlike posture before God that I hadn't experienced since when I first became a Christian. Uh, When my oldest child was born, I decided that I needed to be a grown-up. So I took out my nose ring, and for a small time, I started wearing a bow tie. And... uh, but it, it, it was a hard road, and I had a hard time accomplishing this grown-up status. But I think that um, adult posturing that I was trying to do with the bow tie and taking out the nose ring and other things um, bled over into my spiritual life. I thought, I need to start dressing up more in my spiritual life. I thought I needed to try to read bigger chunks of the Bible with more intensity. So I approached the Bible like something for me to master as an educated adult. And I think a consequence was that my prayer life became more sober and brief and less raw. Um, I came up with this analogy because there's a young woman on staff at Salem who the first uh, couple months that I, I worked with her and spent time with her, she just prayed so differently than I did. And what I would say is that I, I feel like many of us, especially who've spent time in, in Presbyterian churches, we leave God voicemails. And, and so my prayers would be things like, um, God, hello. <clears throat> it's Austin. Um, just wanted to let you know a few things to put on your list. Thanks. Have a good day. Goodbye. Um, whereas I felt like when she was talking, she would be like, mm-mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I would want to be like, are you talking to him right now? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just, I send him emails. And I, but you're like, you are having an exchange with God right now. Um, there was a time right when I finished college. I went to college in Boulder, Colorado where I I did not have a job right after I finished, and I was running out of money, and I literally dropped to my knees, and I looked up at the Flatirons, these mountains in Boulder, and I cried out, God, I will go anywhere. Just please show me. Uh, Another time, I was in a blizzard at 10,000 feet in the Grand Tetons, and my friends and I couldn't find the trail, and we just 
begged God to save us and show us how to get down the mountain, uh, preferably not over a cliff. And in those times, I knew that I was desperate and that I was helpless. But the rest of the time, I don't feel that way. Why? Why is that? I don't think it's because the rest of the time I'm any less vulnerable. Do I get distressed? Like it says David does in verse 16? Yes, I do. Do I have problems? Like it says about David in verse 17? Yes. Do I feel pain? And do I sin? Like it says about David in verse 18? Yes. But I spend most of my days trying to be a grown-up, either fretting or gossiping or problem-solving. And listen, I cannot convince you of your neediness because I have a hard enough time convincing myself, but let me work backwards through what we've gone over today. If you want to enjoy this secret counsel of God that David enjoys, this friendship of God, then you have to surrender to him. To enjoy him, you have to surrender to him. Not just affiliate with him. You have to surrender to him. David clearly enjoys this secret counsel. David ripped his clothes off to dance before God. He writes desperately pleading prayers, and he pushes at God to do things. We have our views, and we might ask the question, can the Messiah mesh with my worldview? And that's the opposite of what David's doing. I think to really enjoy God like David, you need to surrender to God. But to surrender, you have to feel needy. So what is this path that David's asking for? You might notice the word path shows up a few times. Also, road. David's not saying, I know where I want to go. God, will you also be going that way? He's not saying, I know where I'm going. God, would you like to come with me? I'd like you to invite you into my journey. David is a child asking to be led with no knowledge of what the answer will be or where he's going. He asks for a path. He asks for a road. He asks for a way and truth. And David didn't know how it would be answered. He didn't know that it would be answered within his own family. So where, where is the answer? Where is this road, this path? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus is the path. He's the path that David is asking for. The road, the way, the truth, and the light, as Jesus describes himself in John 14. Jesus will have you any way you come to him even if you're embarrassed of him and not surrendered and not needy. Look at Matthew 20. He tells a parable where vineyard workers are paid the same wage whether they were in the field with the owner all day or just at the end. They get paid the same. The reward is the same. And coming early will not earn you anything extra. 
And it's kind of a vulnerable task, actually, to come to him early, to be needy and surrendered to him, because you're saying no to lots of other things. David's showing that if we come to him needy and surrendered, we will be vulnerable. David's saying, look how vulnerable I am. I am needy. I need you to lead me. I need you to protect me. Calling on Jesus is good. Calling Jesus the way puts a lot at risk. It means that we have to deny our self-sufficiency. We might have to give up some idols or our own opinions about politics, ethics, morality, or just pleasure. Following anyone is a vulnerable act because it means you are trusting them with your safety and your future. So I want you to hear this morning that he will pay you your wages no matter what. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So don't walk away from here this morning thinking, I heard that I need to emulate David. I need to copy this way of doing things. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that there is a correlation, it seems, that if you can be vulnerable, if you can sit in your neediness, if you can open your hands to surrender, you will find healing and peace and life that you can't even believe. So much that you may cry out, Oh, Lord, I give my life to you. Like I said, following anyone is a vulnerable act because you are letting them be in charge of your safety and your future. Today, I promise you that Jesus is who he says he is in Matthew 11, an easy yoke and a light burden. We can all come to him and in many ways, you can hold on to a lot of actions and opinions and, and even some things that you are putting your trust in that might even be called idols. But I suspect that the real goodness comes when we surrender our self-sufficiency and come to him needy and demanding like a child. When we lay our pride and our burden down and we bring open hands, asking him, maybe even whining, Please feed me. And that's why he gave us this table. That's why he said on the night that he was betrayed, thank you to his father. And he took bread and he broke it to these needy children and he said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took a cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, blood that is shed for you, the blood of the new covenant poured out for your forgiveness. And he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask Chris to come and talk to you about how you discern coming to this table and the way that you all talk about that at Redeemer, and then give instructions. So let me pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters at 
Redeemer, this church, this church that planted our church, our little church that started in this very room. Thank you so much for these people. Uh, I want to pray for each and every one of us, Lord, that your spirit would call out our neediness within us, our desperation, our helplessness. Uh, because if we can know our hunger, uh, we can see how you satiate it through your death on the cross that we remember at this table. We love you, Lord. Amen.